Through 54. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to beseech him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Kim. You can grab a seat. Thanks, Chris. Hey, it's, uh, it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Um, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic and get to open scripture with you. Um, we're also coming to the, the end, the conclusion of a season where our lead pastor, Tim, has uh, been away at sabbatical since early October. And um, it's been a season for him of rest 
and refocus. And um, I just wanted to take a moment just to update you on that, that, that actually this next week, um, he's going to be coming back and he'll be with us next Sunday. And I also want to take this moment just to, to really thank our team, our leaders and volunteers, and, and really just you, our, our church family, for leaning in in this season, contributing, for being a part of what God has been up to these last several months. It's been a, a sweet time with you and um, looking forward to seeing what God has for us moving forward. Hey, um, this is our second week, our second Sunday in this new year. And if I haven't had a chance to talk to you yet, happy new year. So glad that you're, you're here with us, uh, singing, worshiping, and getting ready to open God's word together. Last Sunday, um, we were here in this space, and we are online, and we did something a little different. It was January 1st, New Year's Day. Uh, that doesn't always land on a Sunday, so we kind of made the most of the time. Moved all these chairs, set up a bunch of tables. There was actually quite a few people, close to 150 people, who came out for a Sunday brunch with one another. And uh, to focus our attention on uh, setting aside faulty beliefs and reorienting our lives towards redeemed beliefs that God has for us. And it was, was such a sweet time to start our year. But now on this, this second week, the second Sunday of 2013, we're actually going to be stepping back into our Luke teaching. And to give you a little context for this teaching, um, we started into this, this series called Luke and Acts, where we're going to take a, a, a kind of a slow walk through the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. Uh, we started this a little over a year ago and have been journeying through today, as you just heard, we're on Luke chapter 11. And, and just to give a little bit of a framework for this book that we've spent so much time uh, investigating and walking through and discovering with one another, this book was written and the book of Acts was written by the same person, and it was written to the same person, a, a friend of the writer named Theophilus. And the point of this book of Luke was to make clear the story of Jesus the claims of Jesus, not in a, a, in a hypothetical situation, but from first-person eyewitnesses of Jesus, of the life of Jesus. In fact, in the beginning of Luke, in, in, in chapter 1, it, uh, the, the author says, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught. This is the fruit from this teaching that we're hoping to gain a certainty of who this Jesus is. And week after week, as we revisit this story of Jesus, that our faith in him is growing. We've been journeying, starting with the, the, the narrative around his birth, before he was even born, the prophecies that were fulfilled, the people coming together to witness the birth of the Son of God. We just spent a month plus walking through that story in the season of Advent. Then moving to Jesus making the proclamation about himself that he's not just a prophet, he's not just a healer, he's not just a teacher, but he proclaims about himself in this book of Luke that he is in fact the son of God. And we journey with Jesus as he begins to talk about his kingdom arriving, this kingdom that is different than the kingdom and structures of this world. It's upside down compared to the structures of this world because it elevates the weak. It elevates the vulnerable, the downtrodden, this kingdom that's arriving that he is inviting us into. We've journeyed with Jesus 
as he's demonstrated power and authority in his teaching. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's shown his power over evil authority in our world. And now as we step into Luke chapter 11, we're again going to journey with Jesus as he sets his eyes towards the city of Jerusalem. With resolve in his heart, he is going fully knowing what lies ahead for him, that he will be betrayed, that people will lie about him, that he will be falsely accused, falsely convicted, and sentenced to death on a cross for the sake of all humanity. And in his journey towards Jerusalem, towards ultimately the cross, his death and resurrection, even in this moment, Jesus is still teaching about his kingdom, still inviting people into his kingdom. And so we're going to look at this story today in, uh, in Luke chapter 11 of an interaction between Jesus and some Pharisees and teachers of the law. And as you are turning there, I want to take a moment just to pray for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we are joined together in person and around our city online, um, that we're joining together our faith and our belief in you. Uh, we bring our full selves into this conversation. We bring our doubts, we bring our fears, we bring the, the unredeemed places of our heart that we have yet to surrender and let go to you. And we say today, Jesus, have your way. Speak to us. Encourage us, convict us, help us to grow from the life that we read in your word. And we thank you and we love you in your name. Amen. Well, years ago, before each of us had a high-powered camera attached to our phone, we used to have to buy cameras. Now, I know that there's still a market for cameras and serious photographers still buy cameras, but, but in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a big push and a big campaign from a camera-making company called Canon. And uh, they, they had this series of commercials where they contracted with a famous tennis player who was known for swearing and having fits on the court named Andre, Andre Agassi. You might remember him. And they had a campaign to sell their camera, Canon cameras, where they had him playing and going back and forth. And it was this kind of high tension, uh, dramatic commercial. And at the end, their slogan would appear and it would say what? Image is everything. Image is everything. This, this concept that, that what you see on the outside, what can be portrayed, what can be communicated is, is everything. It's the most. Another way of thinking about that is, is a phrase that we probably also know, uh, which is perception is reality. Meaning what you see on the outside, the trappings of my life, are the extent of who I am. Yet over and over and over, we see in Scripture, Jesus confronting people, not on the perception of who they are, not on the image that they portray, but in the heart of who they truly are. Jesus seeing past the external into the heart of the motivations, the true essence of character, into the heart of who people are, and addressing and meeting them in that place. The story that, that we're looking at today is a story about just that. 
Jesus having and interacting with a group of people who have put forth an image, who have put forth a perception that they are communicating about themselves that Jesus sees right through and goes to the heart. It begins um, in Luke 37, 1137 with an invitation. Jesus has been teaching, like I said, he's on his way journeying to Jerusalem. And even in this moment, as he's pursuing Jerusalem, knowing that the cross awaits him, he is still inviting people. He's still teaching. He's still having interactions. And it says this in verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the mill. Now, I want to hit pause and, and kind of access some of this, this terminology, a bit of a lexicon, just in case the term uh, Pharisee doesn't mean anything to you. Pharisees were a religious sect within the uh, Jewish faith. They represented a, a version of Jewish faith that was, was pretty severe with their rules. Everything about their life was, was shaped about these rules from the Old Testament, the, the, the law, the covenant given to, Mose, uh, to Moses. And they lived this to the nth degree. Everything that they did was affected by this. This, this is the Pharisees. And later we'll, we'll read about people who are experts in the law. Your, your Bible might even say lawyers. And the, the law that's being described is not law the way that, that we understand, which is apart from any kind of religious belief, but rather the very law that the Pharisees have based their, law, their lives on, the law given to Moses, the Old Testament covenant. And so Jesus is invited to lunch by this Pharisee. And he goes, and as he's reclining on the table, beginning to eat, Jesus does something pretty unique. Kind of sets this Pharisee up a little bit. As they're beginning to eat their meal, the Pharisee notices that Jesus does not go through the ceremonial uh, uh, washing of himself and his utensils, utensils the, the cup and the bowl and the things that he would use. And, and, and this isn't because Jesus lacks uh, cleanliness, right? I, I don't think Jesus is against cleanliness. I'm very much for cleanliness, and I don't think that Jesus is inviting me to not wash my hands. In fact, all the time that when Dana and I are out to dinner on a date, I'll come back from the bathroom sometimes. I'll say, Dana, see that guy over there? Don't look. I was just in the bathroom, and he didn't wash his hands. What is happening? This, this isn't what the story this isn't what the story is about. Jesus is very intentionally violating a custom, a long-held tradition of this Pharisee. And he's doing it to get at this Pharisee's heart. He's doing it to get beyond the outward external trappings of this religious dance that they're going through, to, to get at this Pharisee's heart. What's fascinating about this reality is to this day, Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, still does this to you and I. He reaches us beyond the external trappings of our lives, at times catching us off, off guard, at times even stepping on our toes to get our attention, to wake us out of the minutia of day-to-day -day living and say, yes, but I'm here for your heart. What about your heart? And so as he's sitting here, he notices, this Pharisee notices that Jesus 
does not wash. It doesn't say anything, but Jesus recognizes in his heart. And we get at the heart of the story. And then I'll give you a, a, a bit of a warning. The story reveals Jesus's passion to liberate the heart from false living. It reveals his passion, his willingness to run at the truth, even if it's a hard truth, even if it's a difficult truth to hear. He runs at this to liberate the heart from false living. And it says this in verse 39. Jesus is aware of this Pharisee's heart, aware that he is indignant that Jesus didn't go through the ceremonial washes and says this. The Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So Jesus, recognizing their hearts, recognizing that he is currently being judged, he addresses them and says, you, you foolish Pharisees, don't you realize you're like the very cup in your hand? Would you want to dine or drink from a cup where the outside was clean and made right, but the inside was filthy? And living lives where you are fixated on the external trappings of a religious life, but your heart is void of life, you are offering this vessel to God of an outside that has been made clean, but the inside is messy and void of life. This analogy of a cup that he's pointing at this reality of outward culture, of outward recognition that does not correlate to inward truth. Now this, this is uh, 2,000, roughly 2,000 years ago, but it, it still resonates very much in our culture. We live in a culture that is fixated with outward representation. The life that we portray to other people, the things that we've accumulated, the things that we've uh, put into our life that, that represent us to the world around us, this life that we procreate. I was recently um, at uh, Plaid Pantry and I was getting ready to leave and I was in my truck uh, leaving the parking lot and it was very busy and I was, I was waiting for a moment where I could pull out into traffic and I noticed there was a vehicle behind me getting impatient. They kept creeping up and creeping up. You know, they, they do that thing like they just want me to pull out into traffic. I don't know. And, and eventually I noticed they backed up and started to come around. And I was like, oh man, they're, they're really must be in a hurry. My window is down, so I'm just kind of hanging out there. And I just see tire, like this ginormous tire going by my window. And I'm like, what is this? And, and I'm kind of giving side eye to the biggest truck I've ever seen in Portland. It's sensible. We're in a congested city of 2.1 million people with no parking and tiny roads. It just makes sense to drive something like this. And, and as I'm sitting there, kind of giving my side eye, thinking, what is this gigantic truck? I, I, you ever have that feeling where you could just tell someone's staring at you? You didn't look at them, but you can just kind of feel the gaze. And I, I feel this face looking at me. So finally, I, I look, and there's a guy and he's looking at me and he leans over just as traffic is getting ready to clear up and he goes, cute truck, bro. 
and he hits the gas, boom, and takes off. And I, I didn't even go. I was, I was, I was just stunned. I was like, well, I drive a normal sized truck. I mean, it's, it's all right. It's cute, I guess. I, I don't know. And, and in that moment, just this realization that, that I was reduced to just a guy who has a truck from a guy who has a much bigger truck. And it's, it's ridiculous, but, but it's a microcosm, a little bit of a reflection of, of some of how we can operate. Where we assimilate these things about our lives that communicate to the world around us, this is who I am, this is what I care about, this is how I want you to think about me, this is how I want you to see me. And yet Jesus, he liberates our hearts from that way of living because he sees our hearts. He sees past those actions and the trappings of a life to the heart of who we are. That might feel really scary. That might feel insanely vulnerable. But isn't it amazing that someone knows truly who you are? They see every corner of your heart. They see every action of your life. They know every motivation of who you are. God knows these things and he still pursues us. He still seeks to be in community with us, that we get to be known by him, not based on what we can earn or the life that we can assimilate, but because he wants to be with us and wants our heart. When we read stories like this, we're meant to think about the truth that's relevant in our lives. This is certainly a story about Jesus going to lunch with Pharisees 2,000 years ago, but, but there is reality that is true at that time that is also true now that will be true forever. And as I think about how I relate with this story and with the characters of the story, I might find myself in a few different places. As I think about these religious people who adhere to this strict law, who are judgmental, I could think about how I've been affected by people like that how I feel pushed out or slighted or judged or deemed less than because I can't, I can't quite get to the rules and the way of living that they do. On the same side, I can also think about times where I've, I've, I've kind of felt like the Pharisee. I've kind of felt like I've projected a life that, that I'm not actually living. And in both of these, Jesus wants to meet me because the truth is Jesus loves these Pharisees. I mean, I, I know that it is evident practically because, because he went to lunch with them. I have had invitations to a lunch with people who I know have advice for my life that I just don't want. You've been invited to that lunch. It's easy to pass that up. Jesus knew full well what this encounter was gonna be, but he went and he gave them a hard truth. I know Jesus loves these Pharisees because he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on a hill on a cross for them and for you and for me. And so as we, we start back into this Luke series and starting into this new year, we're starting with, with six woes, which can feel heavy. You can feel like, wow, I don't even know what we do with these. These religious leaders are in trouble. Go get them, Jesus. I don't know what this means. But, but the reality is, these six woes are given as an act of love. Truth given to bring freedom and to liberate hearts that are bound in religious trappings and external reality. 
So he begins with this first woe. In verse 42, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because image isn't everything. You've invested in a form of, of, of engaging in religious living that is skin deep. It's all on the outside, but you've neglected the poor. You've neglected the love of God. You've, you've landed on a form of religion that is concerned with social and political representation and image, but neglect what God desires for the human heart. This first woe, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees because everything that they are doing is to be seen by other people, to be represented in a political arena, in a social arena. And in their mind, the ideology here is if we can get enough people living rules well enough, we will bring about the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright, in his commentary about this passage, says this, they, they, being the Pharisees, held what would be called a strong political belief, backed up with religious sanctions. Their rules were designed to make people keep the Jewish law as best they could so that Israel would be made holy, and thus God would bring in his kingdom. If we can make enough people follow these rules well enough, then God's kingdom will arrive. What they fail to see is the man who they've invited to lunch with them is bringing about the very kingdom that their religious custom fails over and over and over to deliver. Because as we read about their history, God's concern, God's aim wasn't just in their customs, it was in their heart this transformation from the inside, the core of who they are, working its way into the patterns of their lives. Listen to this. Uh, this is Amos 5, written many years before this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, revealing the heart of God. And he says this. This is a, a prophetic word from God. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring a choice fellowship offering, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river in righteousness, like a never-failing stream. The kingdom of God isn't brought about by our ability to adhere to laws. The kingdom of God isn't brought about by you and I portraying a life to the world around us that doesn't represent our hearts. The kingdom of God begins in our hearts. The transformation that works its way into every other aspect of our lives. Now, I think it's important noting that in this, this first woe that Jesus delivers, he says at the end, as he acknowledges their, their uh, desire, fervency for them, that you should practice the latter without leaving the former undone. That Jesus isn't f 
full out rejecting their fervor to be his people and to follow him, but to invite them rather into the transformation of heart rather than just the transformation of life that doesn't involve their heart. He goes on in the next verse in 43, woe to the Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. The second woe is, is you promote yourself before others, using their influence to promote their own living, their own lives for the sake of themselves, allowing themselves to be given the best seats in the synagogue, allowing themselves to be given elaborate welcomes as they come and go. Jesus challenges them in this because this isn't the heart of God. In Philippians 2, 3, a very familiar scripture says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. The example of Jesus that, that Paul writes about to the church in Philippi is an example of humility. That when true tra transformation happens, when it's not skin deep, it prefers the other. It prefers one another. Jesus says, woe to you because you're promoting yourself and you're neglecting others. He says in verse 44, woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing. Jesus isn't mincing words in this. You are like unmarked graves. In this cultural setting, in this, this context, to be a Pharisee, you could not be around death. If you are around death, you are ceremoniously unclean. And so to be called death, to be called the person walking around making everyone else unclean is highly insulting and highly challenging. Jesus is saying the form of religion that you practice is actually bringing death to people around you because you're bringing a hollow form of what I've truly desired to give you. You're going through the trappings of a religion, through the work of a religion without the life within your heart coming from me. And not only are you living this for yourself, but you're inviting others into it. You are in, inwardly dead with the outward appearance of life. Woe to you Pharisees. These, these first woes, these first warnings are given to the Pharisees. And, and these next three are, are for the, uh, the, the lawyers, the, the um, experts in the law. And this is kind of where it pivots for them. On, on verse, verse 45, it says, and one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. I imagine the other teachers of the law see the one person saying this, they're like, Shh, don't say anything. Let the Pharisees get it. We, we don't need a part of this. And, and the one is like, hey, when... When you're stepping on their toes, when you're saying these, you're actually in, insulting us also. And then Jesus delivers three woes to these lawyers. He says, Jesus replied, and this is verse 46, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. This woe of burning people with rules, but do not serve them. Burning people with expectation, 
of putting hindrances between them and God of your expectations, of putting hindrances between them and God based on your preferences, based on what makes you comfortable, based on what you want to see. He says you load them with burdens, but, but you don't lift a finger to help them. This religious posturing, representing God, but void of mercy and compassion. You've, you've laid these burdens on people when you've interpreted the law for them, but you forgot compassion. You forgot to represent the very God who's extended his love to you. He goes on in verse 47, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify and prove of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and, built their t- and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles from whom they will kill and others will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you for perpetuating the mistakes and the sins of generations before you. This is, this is a prophetic woe because Jesus is saying, your ancestors put to death the very people God has sent to you to liberate you and to bring you freedom. And you build, temp- or you build tombs that, that, that commemorate and remember these people. And yet it is your ancestors who have done this thing. And this is a prophetic woe because they're about to do the same thing to Jesus. He is another prophet come as the son of God to bring liberty and life to them and they will perpetuate the sins of their ancestors to put yet another prophet, another spokesman for God to death. And the final woe in in 52 says, woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. Woe to you. Woe to you because you'll you're not engaging the life that God has for you. And you're also hindering people from entering into that space. Six woes. Jesus is ticked. It's a little heavy. And yet as I, as I read these, I can resonate with places in my own heart where I get stuck and working on the outside of the cup. I put too much energy and hope in the external parts of my life and neglect the life that God desires for my heart. Neglect the reality and the truth that the fruit of my life doesn't flow from the external realities. The fruit of my life flows from the heart, from what God is doing in my heart. That is the soul, that is the, the, the core of the gospel of Jesus, that he has come to provide what we cannot provide to ourselves, no matter how disciplined, no matter how wealthy, no matter how equipped we are. We fall short to build the life that Jesus can provide through relationship with him. 
And so I'm gonna invite, I'm gonna invite our team to come forward as we think about how we respond to words like this. The Pharisees and the leaders of the law, the teachers of the law, they, they didn't respond particularly well. It says in, in verse 53, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to beseech him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They didn't receive this very well. They were very upset. And this is beginning to snowball as he is, is making the enemies with these religious leaders who will eventually falsely accuse him and, and, and have him arrested. We also have an opportunity to respond. God oftentimes steps into our story, steps into our life where we want ease and comfort. Oftentimes he brings challenges. He brings, brings warnings and woes to us to tell us, hey, you're, you're, you're focused on the external realities of your life, but I want your heart. I see your heart. I know your heart. There's no life that you can build that eclipses your heart. His invitation to you and I is to come before him in trueness and authenticity. To set aside the false belief we can design a life that leads us to him. To reject that lie that we can design a life that brings us what only he can bring us. Then to be people who represent that transformation, not rigorous rules and laws based on our own preferences and image, but rather true and authentic transformation where what we have brought is confession and faith. And God has met us faithfully in that. We're gonna, we're gonna come to these tables as part of our worship. Um, if you're at home, uh, get some elements ready. We're gonna take communion together in just a moment. And as we, we sit with the, the reality of this conversation between Jesus and these religious leaders and this, this heavy challenge that he levies for them in love, I'm gonna invite us into that same conversation with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, where, where do I need to hear your challenge? Where are you saying, hey, what woe to you, warning, hey, watch out. You've put too much confidence in the outcomes of your life. I want you to turn to me. You've put too much confidence in what others think about you as though that means anything. I want you to be worried about what I think about you be invited into authenticity of relationship with the God of the universe. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that we get to go to, to lunch with Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders today. Um, it's kind of an awkward lunch, a bit of awkward silences and uh, a lot of challenge that you laid out. But I know you, you bring this truth because you want to liberate. You bring this truth because you know that we cannot provide for ourselves the lives that we are meant to have apart from you. And so I pray today as we, as we come to this table that we would come with authenticity and heart realizing you are not interested in our performance. You are not interested in what we can convince other people around us. You are interested in our hearts. You see everything, the good, the broken, 
the desire. You see everything and you don't flinch. You have what is needed to mend our hearts and it's been provided for us at these tables. So we come, we take the bread, we take the juice that represents your body broken, your blood spilt, knowing that this is our means of hope. This is our means of being made right with you. And we thank you and we worship you, Lord. Let's continue to sing and worship and to come to these tables, take communion together.